Today we are in Matthew 27, verses 11 to 26. Uh, We are looking at the episode where Jesus is in interaction with Pilate. So I'd like to pray for us, and then we will uh, get a bit of context, read the text, and see what God has uh, for us this morning in the lead up to Easter. Lord, I am thankful for this season. Thankful, God, that uh, we as a church have much to be thankful for. Uh, not just because of what you're doing uh, in us and through us, but uh, Jesus, because of who you are, because we have a hope that we can share with those around us, uh, Lord, because the hope in our own lives is one that, that bubbles over, uh, Lord, that spills out, and, uh, and God, we want for it to impact uh, the lives of those in our community. I-, I pray that would be the case. I pray, Lord, as we give out invitations, as we have conversations, Lord, the people would be drawn here uh, to hear the Easter story, to, to hear what it is that you've done for them on the cross. I pray for us now, Lord, as we give our attention to some of the lead up to the cross. Lord, would you help us to understand the circumstances of that particular place and time? Uh, Lord, what it reveals about you and what it says about us. And I pray, Lord, as always, you would use me in spite of myself. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our title for this morning is Pilate's Trial. And that's because, as I said, we are going to be looking at the sort of the trial of Jesus, which is an extended trial, but uh, this portion in particular is where he is before uh, Pilate, his, his judge. Trials themselves are things that we tend to be fairly interested in as a people, as a culture. If you think about the number of TV shows and movies that are about courtroom dramas, just just stands to reason that we, there's something compelling about this idea that there's someone accused and that we spend a certain amount of time uh, investigating, witnesses coming forward, evidence being given, all to the climactic moment where a judge or a jury pronounces innocent or guilty. That's what we're going to see in part today as we look at our text, although there's going to be a few things that are different, that are not not, uh, the norm for a trial. For one thing, uh, we're going to see that the accused, Jesus, the defendant, he he does not give much of a defense. And the other thing that becomes... uh, clear very quickly is that it's not Jesus who is actually under the most amount of pressure here, as you would expect. Rather, Pilate, his judge, is the one who, who is in the, under the most amount of pressure. Pressure from the Jewish leaders who are calling for the death of Jesus, pressure from his obligations to Rome, and pressure from his own conscience. And this leads him to the to the moment where he has to make a decision about Jesus and he articulates his, his quandary, his dilemma in the form of a question. A question that is for him at that moment as he speaks to the crowd in front of him, but also uh, is for all of humanity. And the question he says is this, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? What shall he do in that moment with Jesus? He has to make a judgment, but ultimately that's a question for him as a human being and, and one for us as well. And so our our time together, uh, the title, Pilate's Trial, we're going to focus on this wrestle that Pilate has in three parts. Uh, We're going to look first at uh, Pilate amazed, then Pilate under pressure, and finally Pilate condemned. So we'll begin with the first point, Pilate amazed. I'm going to read our text in just a moment, but it's good for us to get a little bit of context here. So we are in the the road to the cross, the, the Easter story. And you can kind of divide up uh, the road to the cross in seven-ish sections. So we're going to do that here just to show you where we are. Uh, We begin with Jesus arrested. Uh, This was what uh, Jacob took us through a number of weeks ago in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Then we have Jesus before the Jewish council. Uh, David worked us through that text where he's accused and then convicted by them. But now we have Pilate part one, then Herod, then Pilate part two. 
and then the scourging and crucifixion itself. So in our text today, we get Pilate part one and Pilate part two. So two Pilots together, and uh, they form uh, a scene which is, as I said, really about this ultimate decision that Pilate has to make because uh, he is the authority in the land. If you're not sure who uh, Pontius Pilate is, he is the Roman governor. He is the one who has been charged by Rome to rule over the land and has two main jobs. The first job is to ensure that the taxes are collected. Very important to Rome. Taxes have to be collected. The second job is to keep peace in the land so that the taxes can be collected. That's his main, main thing. That's what Rome is concerned about. We don't care what happens just as long as the taxes keep rolling in. And so because he's charged with keeping the peace, uh, he is he's the judge. A lot of civil cases uh, come to him and legal cases, and he's the one who pronounces judgment. He's the only one who has life and death in his hands. The Jewish leaders know this, and so if you can uh, picture in your mind, this is Good Friday, the first Good Friday. It's very early, about 5 a.m., when they come knocking at Pilate's door. And that's because they've already, they've already accused Jesus, had a trial uh, during the night, and the charges that they've uh, you know, put against Jesus have been ones that for them are very important. So they said that he was guilty of blasphemy, that he was saying that he was the Christ, that he was the Savior, that he was God himself. And according to them, they said, that's, that's blasphemy, that's wrong. You are deserving of death. But what you'll notice is that when they come to Pilate, they, they tweak the charges a bit because Rome doesn't care that much about blasphemy. So notice what they say. Here's Luke 23, just to sort of setting the, the stage here. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. So you'll notice what they added there, that he is, he's misleading our nation, he's a rebel, he's a revolutionary, and he's forbidding us to pay tribute to Caesar. So if you think of Pilate, he's kind of groggy, it's very early, he hears someone say that there's someone not telling everyone not to pay taxes? Is that what's going on here? All of a sudden, he's all at attention. Okay, I want to I hear this case because Rome doesn't care about blasphemy, but they care about rebellion. They care about those who are not paying their taxes. So he hears the case and he begins to question Jesus. This is the, the first part of our, our text this morning. Matthew 27, 11 to 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. That's where we get our, our first point. That phrase could be translated astounded, or he marveled. And he marveled because Pilate had had a lot of people standing before him, but very few of them, we can imagine, would have given no defense when people were accusing them especially if he actually was a revolutionary. Usually then they tend to, you know, want to articulate their case very loudly, very emphatically. This is wrong what they're saying. You're wrong. Everyone's wrong. They, they would make a big fuss. But here Jesus is, is saying nothing. Well, almost nothing. In fact, if you know the story, you, you kind of probably by this point just say, well, that's just how Jesus is. He's just cool, calm, and collected. He doesn't say a lot. He doesn't need to say a lot. But it is worthwhile asking the question, like, why does he say so little? And more than that, uh, why does he say anything at all? He does respond to, to Pilate. Why, do, why does he say, yes, I, I am the king of the Jews? 
Well, a couple of things are important uh, to know in terms of Roman law. According to Roman law, if there was a defendant that gave no defense at all, they didn't say anything, they would have been immediately uh, convicted, immediately condemned. Because Rome figured if, if you're not saying anything, you're just being defiant or belligerent. And if you can't even give any defense of yourself, then you deserve whatever punishment you get. But you notice here, that's, that's not the demeanor that we get from Jesus. It doesn't seem that he's being just defiant or difficult. And in fact, he does give an answer to Pilate when Pilate asks him a question. But when the Jewish leaders start accusing him, hurling insults and false accusations, he says nothing. And Pilate's amazed because he's seen a lot of people standing there and because he knows human nature. And what he knows about us is that we tend to be very quick to defend ourselves. When there's someone who's hurling accusations at us or, you know, even if it's off a little bit, we tend to be like, no, 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 that part, that's not right. That's not what I said. This is something that's woven into us from a young age. I was reminded of this this week. I was listening to a a podcast story, which I do uh, fairly often. And uh, this was a story about a preschool class. And in the preschool class, the teacher was getting overwhelmed by the amount of tattling that was going on in the classroom. All the kids coming, he said this, she said this. So she had an idea. Uh, she took a, a Kleenex box and put it on the wall and then got an old phone receiver and put it there. And she said to the kids, okay, that, that's the tattle phone. If anything's going on in the class, you, you go and you tell the phone. And so they did. And the uh, guy who was making the podcast, his son was in that class and he found out about it. He said, uh, he asked the teacher, could I get a a phone with a recording device so we could record what they say. And so they asked all the parents. All the parents were like, yes, we need to do this. We need to find out what is bothering our children so much. So they have a, this red old phone and it was hooked up to a recording device. And the, when the kids picked up the phone, it would say, hello, this is the tattle phone. Tell me what happened. Tell me the whole story. So they had all these recordings, which uh, as you would expect, here are some of them. Uh, they would pick up the phone. Uh, Eli told me a lie. Click. Seamus wasn't sharing with me, and I don't like it, and I'm very upset. Click. My friend Jack was in my face when I was trying to go to play with the blocks. Click. Oh, so upset. But there's one that I thought uh, kind of really paralleled what we see here. This was a little girl who felt like she was being mis- misrepresented. Uh, she said this. My friend Simone is not listening to Mr. Edmonds. He's my favorite teacher, and I know he's mad at me, but I don't want him to be mad at me. I'm trying to listen. Click. She's so concerned. <laughs> that she would be mischaracterized, that it was her friend. It wasn't her. You need to know, Tattlephone, what's going on? It's a grave injustice. See, this is true of us as human beings. We are quick to explain our side of the story. We are quick to justify our actions. And yet, for Jesus, he remains silent. He does not respond. Why? Well, for one thing, uh, his silence is yet another point of fulfilled prophecy, confirming that he is, in fact, the Messiah. Because way back, hundreds of years prior, uh, through Isaiah, God had given a picture of the coming Savior. And one of the things that was said about this Savior, this Messiah, is this. This is Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so here we have that, that fulfilled in Christ. That he is literally going to the cross to be slaughtered and yet he does not defend himself against the false accusations. He is demonstrating that, that he is the fulfillment of all prophecies when it comes to the Christ. But secondly, and more from a practical point of view, his silence is actually a powerful testimony to his innocence. See, what you get with Jesus in this scene is the distinct impression that he doesn't need to make much of a defense. 
that, that just given the evidence that's being presented clearly with a, with a passion and a, and a corruption by the Jewish leaders, that he really doesn't have to say much. And the reason for that is, given the bigger picture of the situation, it would have been very, very unlikely if there was someone like a, a rebel leader, like they're saying Jesus is, in working around the area that Pilate would not have known about especially if he was doing the kinds of things that the Jewish leader said. If he was speaking publicly, telling people not to pay taxes, telling people that he was the king, that was exactly the kind of thing that Pilate was trying to root out. He had spies, he had soldiers everywhere listening for those that were stirring up rebellion because that was the last thing that Rome wanted. So when the leaders are there hurling all these accusations, Jesus knows that Pilate knows that, that this, this can't be true. There's no way that all the things that they are saying could be true about him if Pilate would not have already known about it. In fact, if they had been true, Jesus probably already would have been in jail. So the silence of Christ shows confidence in his innocence and wisdom in handling the situation. Just He's essentially saying the defense rests without even having to make a defense. Pilate's amazed, and rightly so. The truth is that many people are amazed by Jesus. In fact, that the crowds were around Jesus just listening to his words. In fact, many more people then and now, many more people are amazed by Jesus than have faith in Jesus. If you just do a Google search looking for quotes about Jesus, you will find a whole host of famous and kind of famous people speaking about something that they appreciate or admire about Jesus. Here are some of them that I came across. Gandhi says this about Jesus. He says, a man who was completely innocent offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became a ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. He's, he's celebrating, he's affirming, he's amazed. What Jesus did was selfless, was, was fantastic. Gandhi did not have faith in Jesus, and yet he was amazed by him. Mikhail Gorbachev, former uh, president of, of Russia, the USSR, says, Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. That's his take on it. He looks and reads and he says, I like this part about him. This part really fits with the kind of thing I got going on here. So he's, he's amazed. He's, he's enthusiastic. This one from Camille Paglia, who's a, an author, uh, not as famous as the other two, but she says this, Jesus was a brilliant Jewish stand-up comedian, a phenomenal improviser. His parables are great one-liners. <laughs> it's interesting. They would read some portion of scripture and say, man, I really, this is really great. There's a sense of amazement, a sense of fascination. None of these people are known for their faith in Jesus, and yet there's something about him that intrigues them. And that has always tended to be the case. In fact, for many of us, for some of us, perhaps before we came to faith, there was a season where we, we were just interested. We weren't sure why exactly, but there's something about Jesus that caught our attention. Maybe even now, you're in a season where you, you do seem to enjoy or be interested in the things of Jesus. They're in the scriptures and hearing sermons, and yet you haven't come to a point of faith. There's amazement. But what we find here in this story and throughout all of the, the New Testament especially is that it, we cannot simply be amazed at Jesus. It's not enough for us simply to be intrigued. We are constantly pushed by his own words and by the text of scripture to come to a point of decision about Jesus, about what we truly believe, not just what we're interested in, but, but whether there's something that so convicts us that we would, we would follow that we would change, that we might repent. We see here for Pilate a moment like that, 
This is a, a practical moment where Pilate has to make a decision uh, of innocence or guilt. But, but truly, this is a moment where Pilate has to decide what he believes about Jesus. And what we see in the, in the proceedings is that there's an enormous amount of pressure on Pilate. So that's our second section of our sermon, Pilate under pressure. And the interesting thing is that very, Pilate very quickly actually comes to a decision. If you look in the book of Luke, here's Luke 23, 4. This is almost right after he started interrogating Jesus. Look at what he says. Uh, the, the, then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all of Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. So he says almost right away, look, it's quite obvious. There's no guilt in this man. But they push back. And he tries another tactic. This we find in John. Pilate said to them, look, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. See, he keeps trying to shift the issue back to them or somewhere else. And they, they keep pushing back. This is where the trial is very, very strange. I mean, you have a, a defendant who makes no defense. You have a judge that has already decided that he's innocent, but you have prosecutors who are not taking no for an answer. And you'd kind of wonder, why is Pilate even entertaining this? It's so early. He hasn't had breakfast. Like, surely he is irritated by all of this. Why doesn't he tell them just to get lost? If he is not, I mean, he's the, the hand of Rome. He has all the power in the known world there at his disposal, actual soldiers. He can just say, look, I've told you what I think. Be gone with you. Why doesn't he do that? Well, the answer is that the, the Jewish leaders actually have a very strong point of leverage over Pilate. One that isn't evident in the text, but from the, the history that we know about Pilate. Here's the truth. At that moment in time, Pilate actually had three strikes against him when it comes to his interactions with the Jewish leaders. See, he'd been in power for about four years, and during those four years, he had made three major blunders, and Rome knew about it. So I'm going to give you the three strikes. Firstly, when he first came to power, he wanted to flex his muscle. So he sent his soldiers through Jerusalem carrying these uh, Roman ensigns, there's these big poles with uh, symbols on the top, and they, they marched through with Caesar's face. He wanted to show everyone, look, we're in charge. But to the Jewish leaders, to the Jews, that was a false idol. And so what he was doing was parading through their holy city with false idols. The Jewish leaders, they, they went bananas. They came and they confronted Pilate. And Pilate, thinking, look, I, I'm in charge. He, they said to him, you got to get rid of them. And he said, if you don't like it, I'll chop off your heads. And they said, fine, here, do it right now. Let's see what happens in this city if you start killing all the Jewish leaders. And he said, I didn't mean exactly that. Let's talk about this. He backed off. Rome heard about it. And they chastised him. They said, look, your job is to keep the peace what are you doing? We need the taxes. Second strike. He wanted to build an aqueduct. And so he went to the temple treasury, to the Jews, and he took their money. And he built the aqueduct. Of course, they were upset. They rioted. He sent in soldiers. They killed a bunch of people. Rome heard about it and again said, what are you doing? Keep the peace. Do you not understand what you're supposed to be doing here? You're the governor. Third strike. Pilate forgot the thing about Caesar's face. And so he wanted to make new shields for his soldiers that were stationed in Jerusalem. And so to flatter Caesar, he had Caesar's face put on the shield. So everyone wakes up one morning and everyone's standing there with these idols and they get upset again. But instead of going to Pilate this time, they go directly to Rome. They appeal to Caesar and Caesar rebukes Pilate harshly. Three strikes. Everyone knows if there is another disturbance, there's not going to be a fourth strike. Pilate is going to lose his position if things get out of hands. 
So with that in mind, we can see why the Jewish leaders are not backing down. They know the kind of pressure that he is under. And so they are not going to take no for an answer. They want Jesus crucified. Pilate realizes that he's been backed into a corner. But he has two ideas. Two things that he, might, he hopes might shift uh, the focus from himself. The first idea is he realizes that Jesus is actually from Galilee. And Herod, who's kind of a regional king there, he says, well, let's, let's send, you have to go see Herod. Let's let Herod decide. He can be the one to condemn you. The problem with that is that Herod is a bit of a buffoon. No one really takes him seriously. In fact, if you look at the text of Matthew, Matthew doesn't even record it. Luke does, but if you were to go there, what happens is he goes to Herod. Herod asks him a bunch of really superficial questions. Jesus doesn't say anything to Herod, doesn't even think it's worth responding. And Herod sends him back and says, I don't know. I don't think he should be killed, but you deal with it. So the ball's back in Pilate's court. That's where we get to Pilate part two. And here, Pilate, uh, he gets another idea. He remembers that it's Passover, and the custom is to release a Jewish prisoner at the time of Passover to kind of help keep the peace. And so he reasons in his mind, look, there's Barabbas. That's the prisoner that everyone was probably sure was going to be released, but the, the people actually quite like Jesus. So maybe if I give them the choice, they'll pick Jesus. Then it's not me who's setting him free. It's the people. And I won't have all this pressure on me. So this is his great plan, which on paper seems not bad, but it doesn't go so well. So here's uh, verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. So there, the envy, he's saying, look, the the Jewish leaders are envious of Jesus because everyone likes him better. So if I give them the choice, they're going to pick Jesus. The problem is that in this moment, Pilate gets distracted. If you look in the text, it's really interesting. It's it's kind of like uh, if you get a text from someone. Like maybe your, your, your wife or someone in the middle of a meeting and you're a bit distracted. You look down. You should be focused on what you're doing. It's, it's like that. Look at verse 19. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, so he's there in front of the whole crowd, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, there's a lot of debate about this dream. Some people say this is, this is from God, that Pilate's wife had a vision from God, warning him that that Jesus is a righteous man, don't condemn him. Others say, we don't know for sure it's from God, but maybe she was just thinking about Jesus. They'd been talking about him. Either way, what's clear is that at this moment of, of crisis, she proclaims his righteousness. But the effect of it is to distract Pilate. And in that moment, the Jewish leaders, they stir up the crowd. Now, this would not have been too difficult because the, the people actually did like Barabbas even though he's described as a notorious criminal, that was from Rome's point of view. From the Jewish point of view, he was like a a rebel leader that they liked. Also, everyone hated Pilate. So if Pilate was saying you should choose Jesus, they would probably just pick the opposite because they hated Pilate. So here's what happens. Verse 20, in that moment where Pilate is a bit distracted, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. So Pilate, you can imagine him a bit stunned. It's not going the way he thought. Pilate said to them, well, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they all shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So you can picture Pilate there 
with pressure on both sides. On the one side, the forces pressuring him to release Jesus, his own sense of justice, his own conscience, his hatred for the Jews and his own wife, all saying, let this man go. This isn't right. But on the other side, all the forces pressuring him to crucify Jesus, the Jewish leaders, the crowd, and his own, his own sense of wanting to preserve his position, saying, if I do this, then, then I will be secure in this position. There won't be a riot. All will go well. So the question that he asks, it shows the turmoil that he is in. It is really a question of Jesus' innocence. He's saying, well, what should I do? Innocent? Guilty? It's a function of his job to decide, but it is a question that, that resounds with greater importance than simply what we see here. Because he is at a point where he, in his own self, for him as a person, needs to decide, does he side with Jesus or not? Where does he think there is going to be greater good for him in this situation? To be for Christ or to be against him? And notice, this is, this is the question that everyone must decide on, and it's why we can't simply be amazed at Jesus. Given not just the accusations against him, but his own claims. He, he has affirmed, yes, I am the king of the Jews. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. For someone who claims those things, it's not enough simply that we be amazed. We must come to a point of either accepting or rejecting him. And for Jesus, or for Pilate, in light of what Jesus is saying, that what he's wrestling with is, is, is it worth it? Would it be worth it for him to say yes to Jesus, to affirm his innocence, to go with his, maybe his conscience if he's feeling that, or would it be better? Would, it be, would there be more worth, more good for him to crucify him? Well, we see, we know what happens. But, but what I want us to do is as we look at the act of condemning Jesus to see what it is that's going through Pilate's mind. So our third section here is Pilate condemned. And look at, uh, we're going to read the whole thing, but then I'm going to focus on a couple of verses. So here's the last part, verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So the first part we need to latch on to are his first words there. Verse 24, where it says, Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing. So think about that for a moment. He's hesitating, clearly. The, the crowd is mounting. He's hesitating because he's kind of thinking, man, I, I, don't, I don't really feel right about crucifying this man. But then he looks at the circumstances. And what does he see? He sees the, the people starting to rise up. And in his mind, what we know is happening is he's, he's trying to calculate, what, what will it cost me to say yes to Jesus in this moment? And he sees that it will cost him everything. And what he decides is that gaining Jesus in this moment means the loss of everything that he holds dear. You see the, the calculations that he's making. These are the same calculations that, that everyone makes when we come to faith. Deciding, what is it that I gain from saying yes to Jesus? What is it that I lose? Because there is a cost. And what Pilate is saying is that to, to say yes to Jesus means that I lose everything that I really need. What I really need in my life is, is a position of authority and power. Is the wealth that it brings. Is the prestige that it brings. I can't imagine my life without all of those things. And so the decision in the end is that Jesus, he's condemned you see that this is the exact opposite of all that Jesus has been teaching throughout his ministry. 
in terms of what we should value in our lives. Many, many times, Jesus' message is, is don't just look at what's in front of you. Don't just consider your life from this world's point of view. Consider the fact that there is a kingdom coming, a kingdom of heaven, an eternal kingdom. Because if you're not seeing your life in light of the eternal kingdom, you're going to, you're going to put a wrong value on certain things in your life. Here's the way he says it in one of the times. He says it a lot, but Matthew 16, 25. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And that really is the question, isn't it? For those of us, as we contemplate Jesus, what is it that I will give up? What's, what's the worth of the things in my life if following Jesus means that I have to give up certain things? that I have to turn my back on certain things, that people will see me in a certain light. See, all of us are under the same pressure that Pilate experienced. Whether we have not yet come to faith, in which case we are, we are genuinely wrestling as Pilate did. Am I, am I actually gonna believe the things that Jesus says about himself, that he's innocent, that he's the Christ, or not? But even for those of us who have faith, there are many instances in our days and our weeks where we are brought to a point of crisis, where there's pressure. From one side, there's pressure for us to go along with what the world says. Maybe it's in a classroom situation where we have the opportunity to, to speak up, to defend some aspect of Christianity or articulate our own faith. And, and in that moment, we're calculating, if, if I were to say something here, what does that mean? What, what am I going to lose? What are people going to think? Maybe there's other situations where we have an opportunity to follow the, the commands of the Bible in terms of our honesty at work or not, and we calculate, man, that's, what is that going to cost me in terms of actual money? If I were to, to do things just by the book or if I were to cut corners. These pressures are true of every human being. And they really do come down to a question of value. And see, the challenge for Pilate is that it's difficult to see the value of something right in front of you in light of eternity, which is which is harder to see. See, there are certain things that seem very valuable in the moment, but over time, they lose their worth and vice versa. We can all think of probably some financial uh, opportunities that in the moment seems great. Man, this is a great investment and yet in time, not so great. And the, the converse is true. Something that seems like a, I don't know, kind of a gamble, kind of a doubtful thing and yet it produces great wealth. My favorite example of this uh, is the story of Alec Guinness do you know Alec Guinness? Uh, he is the man who played uh, Obi-Wan. Here's a picture of him. You'll notice that Alec Guinness looks rather smug, doesn't he? It's not just because he's British. It's because, <laughs> it's because uh, he negotiated uh, a very unique contract when he was asked to star in Star Wars. At the time, no one knew what Star Wars was. He read it. He was a fairly famous British actor, and he thought, this is, this is fluff. This is like fairy tales in space. I'm not really into this. So what he said is, look, I'll do this, but instead of a flat salary, what I want is a percentage of the gross profits of Star Wars. So he said, I want uh, 2% of the gross, and, and then I'll do your movie. And at the time, uh, George Lucas, they didn't have much money, so they thought, sure, this is great. In fact, uh, they went to offer it to all the other major cast members and said, you can have either a percentage or your flat salary. And all of them said, are you kidding? That's a, that's a horrible deal. I want the money now. James Earl Jones, voice of Darth Vader, turned down the, all, whatever percentage they gave him for $7,000. That's what he got paid to be Darth Vader. Because in the moment, that was, that was the safe bet. That made sense, right? Cash in the hand. Who knows? If anyone in space, this could look horrible. This is probably just going to be forgotten about. 
But of course, in time, Alec Guinness's decision proved to be the greater value. Uh, by the time of his death in the year 2000, he had made $95 million off of that 2% of the gross of Star Wars. See, value is something that's difficult to tell in the moment, but over time, it becomes clearer and clearer. And the difficult thing about the Star Wars cast members was that there were some missing pieces that made it hard for them to calculate whether this was a good deal or not. The missing piece was, was is Star Wars a good movie? Is it something that people are going to want to watch? If they had known that for sure, then they would have made probably a different call. See, for Pilate, there are also some missing pieces. And, and the biggest thing that he cannot see clearly that should be factored into his calculation of Christ is his own sin. You see, he doesn't see the weight of his sin in light of eternity. And so that means for him, he's looking at the rest of his life and he thinks, look, the very best thing for me is to hold on to the security of what I have in this position. And so that I might live my life uh, in comfort, with wealth, with power, that, that's the best thing for me. See, he forgot, he didn't realize that because of his sin, even if he had had that full life, he would come to a point of having to answer for it. And he would pay for it for all of eternity. It, it was not, the value was clearly in trusting in the one who was dealing with sin, Jesus himself. Now, interestingly for Pilate, I'd say maybe sadly for Pilate, he made, he made the choice he made, was the safe bet at the time. He condemns Jesus. He holds, holds on to his position. And he did live the good life, but only for a while. In fact, the, the three strikes he made before, it was a pattern for him. He made a fourth strike. He overreacted to a situation where there are some Samaritan worshipers. Rome found out about it. They called him back to Rome. They stripped him of his position. They put him in exile into the city of Gaul. He lived there for a few years, and then he ultimately hanged himself. He had no hope in this life and no hope in the life to come. See, what we see in the road to the cross is, is, is not just the events of how it happened, but woven into the stories of those who were involved, we have the truth of the gospel that is revealed again and again. That when it comes to, our, to evaluating our life and the hope that we have, those who reject Jesus ultimately have no hope at all. We saw it with Judas. We saw the converse with Peter, who for a moment denied Jesus and yet ultimately had faith and so came back to a sense of hope and purpose in her life. And now sadly we see it with Pilate as well. But do you know the purpose of this is not just so that we might feel sorry for Pilate, though we should, but also so that we might see our place in the story. See, there are a number of places where we fit into the scene. We fit rightly into the scene in, in the crowd, those, those who are calling for the crucifixion of Christ because of our sin, the Jewish leaders who are accusing Jesus. There are many times when we get angry with God because of the way that our life didn't turn out the way that we want or some other such thing. And certainly I think that we can identify with Pilate. That we, that we make the wrong choice. We condemn Christ in the way that we reject him. And in all of this is not meant for us to come to a place of despair, but rather so that we see the value of what he's, Jesus is doing in the moment. Right there through the sovereign hand of God, Jesus is, is on his way to the slaughter so that he might take our place so that he might find hope for us, hope that we can't find for ourselves. See, the, the power and value of Jesus comes from rightly seeing the truth of the situation, that all of those that are turning their backs on him are without hope, are condemned in their denial. But those who ultimately see that what Christ is doing is essential 
for eternal hope, then there's hope in this life and the life to come. I mean, this is the calculation that we need to make for all of us here. And the question that Pilate spoke to the crowd is the question for each one of us. I'll say it again. What, what will we do with Jesus who is the Christ? Will we accept or reject him? Will those of us who have faith in him in the day-to-day of our lives actually heed the leading of his spirit? Will we go along with, with where he's leading us or will in the moment will we calculate and say, this is, I'm not sure what I gain here if I go with Jesus. See, the Easter story is one of a big picture, the biggest picture hope that God is bringing into the lives of each human beings, but it plays itself out in our day-to-day lives. And so the call for us the call for those of us who believe is to, is to internalize this and thank the Lord. God, thank you that, that I deserve, like Pilate, to be condemned. And yet by your grace, not because of my strength, not because of my wisdom, not because I was like Alec Guinness who could see into the future somehow, see some greater value in you. No, it's because of your love for me that you opened my eyes to see my need for you. God, help me to have that same sight each and every day so that when the moment comes, When the question is asked, what will I do with Jesus? I will respond, I will follow him. I will honor him. I will obey him. And for those that are in that that time of amazement, of interest, of wonder, but haven't yet come to the point of faith, my hope is that here again, like Pilate, you will calculate. You, You will ask the question, what will I gain? What will I lose in coming to Christ? but that you will do it in light of eternity and not just in light of what we have here on this earth. What Jesus says is true. What will it gain a man or a woman, any one of us, to gain the whole world but forfeit our soul? That's why Jesus came. That's why we have reason to celebrate, that we would not lose that which is most dear to us, our very life, our very soul, but that we would have the confidence that unto eternity there will be hope and joy for us because of what Christ has done. So let's pray together, and then we'll respond together. Lord God, we are thankful, thankful for this, this scene, this, this point of turmoil, Lord, for Pilate, which is one that I think we can identify with, Lord, in our day-to-day lives. Uh, God, I pray that you would speak into that. I pray, Lord, you'd help us with the truth that is revealed in this scene to, to weigh and calculate all of our lives, not just in light of what we can see, but in light of what you've revealed in Christ. And Lord, that we would feel the weight of our sin, Lord, that we would see, Jesus, how you've paid for it on the cross and that we would not believe the lies of our sin and and the enemy that would lead us to think that there are certain things in this life that are worth more. Uh, I pray, Lord, for each one of us. Help us to come to that point of conviction. And Lord, I pray for this week, this Easter week. Lord, may there be many, uh, many around us who receive invitations, who who, uh, respond with a positive, um, with encouragement, Lord, with, with an excitement, perhaps, with at least an interest to walk through the doors, to hear what it is that you have done for them. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to move in our community and in our own hearts. And uh, I thank you for this message and this time. Thank you for this text. In Jesus' name, amen.